Hello, my name is Niall Jefferson and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. The topic of this podcast is rhinitis and our guest expert is Associate Professor Richard Harvey. Professor Harvey completed training in otolaryngology head and neck surgery. He went on to perform fellowship training with uh, Valerie Lund in the United Kingdom and Rod Schlosser in the US with some additional time in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He is widely published as both author and editor and has presented and taught nationally and internationally. He has a keen interest in nose, sinus, allergy and skull-based conditions, as well as a keen academic and research commitment. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Thanks, Tom. Uh, let's begin by uh, defining this condition known as rhinitis. When it comes to allergic rhinitis, the most important thing here is to note that um, allergic rhinitis is common. It's a type 1 IgE-mediated hypersensitivity reaction of the nasal airway. I reject the idea that all rhinitis and rhinosinusitis just will be called all one thing. This was a primary care GP group in the UK who started this, and I think it's totally flawed. I think that the classic feature of rhinitis patients is that they don't develop sinus dysfunction. They have normal sinus scans don't develop chronic mucosal edema, bacterial colonization, nor mucosillary dysfunction of their sinuses. They have simply at heart a persistent IgE-mediated inflammation of their nose. We are going to touch here briefly on the fact that if rhinitis is not allergic, then we call it non-allergic. And perhaps in another podcast we can talk about the concept of talking about broader conditions of rhinitis, and that although that's a nice definition, Perhaps in clinical practice, I use the concept that is it an inflammatory rhinitis versus a non-inflammatory rhinitis, where the majority of non-inflammatory rhinitis conditions are neurogenic in origin. But if we talk about inflammatory rhinitis, there are probably a few other inflammatory causes, occupational rhinitis, chlorine rhinitis. These are thought to be perhaps even type 4 hypersensitivity reactions. Um, and... I think there are unusual eosinophilic conditions that occur in the nose. So we acknowledge that there are probably other inflammatory causes, such as NARES, non-allergic eosinophilic rhinitis syndrome, which um, probably represent early forms of the same condition that affects polypoid rhinosinusitis in asthma patients. But it just happens in the nose first. And studies have shown that 50% of those patients will actually go on and develop polyps in asthma later on. So that said... When we talk about inflammatory and non-inflammatory rhinitis, allergy or allergic rhinitis is in that inflammatory group. And I think that's important because that's how the market is set up. Anti-inflammatory agents are easily available for managing the inflammatory rhinitis, and that makes it a practical definition. How do you then uh, describe the pathological process underpinning its development? So there are two components here. You don't have to have broad um, IgE-mediated disease. And, and this comes to the heart of how we test for these conditions. Um, one can generate uh, a primed uh, IgE-specific uh, immunity in a local organ. It doesn't have to be a body-wide. So not everyone will have allergic asthma, allergic conjunctivitis, and allergic skin reactions. It can happen locally. And it doesn't necessarily even have to involve the bone marrow, such as a typical B-cell maturation is thought to occur 
or even occur in um, secondary uh, lymphoid or primary lymphoid follicles. It is believed that the allergic response and the priming for antigen-specific IgE can occur locally in tissue. And of course, this term is called entropy rather than ATP. And I think that there is more acknowledgement that this actually happens, that the concept that uh, the outside antigen gets taken up by antigen-presenting cells, gets presented to naive T cells, interacts with MH class 2's um, C receptors, um, the T cell is primed, it goes back, it talks to B cells, it encourages a population of B cells to produce in which their antibody that they're producing is specific to what is being presented by the antigen-presenting cell through the MHC2. And this process of selection of B cells with specific antibodies was traditionally thought to occur in the germinal centres of lymph nodes. But there is great evidence now that much of this can happen locally in the local organ. And this explains why some patients clearly will have allergic rhinitis, but they won't have IgE antibodies in their blood or in their skin to support uh, their diagnosis. What now, with our improved understanding of this process, is the role of the terms seasonal and perennial allergic rhinitis? So when ARIA came out, this is allergic rhinitis in Aspen document, they really judged the terms seasonal and perennial. And the reason for this was that they were trying to explain the symptom profile for patients based on the IgE um, inflammatory response. So if we go back to what happens in the allergic response, and maybe some of this we could have discussed in the question before, but there is an acute phase in which cross-linking of IgE causes mast cell degranulation, you get the immediate release of prime substances, and this causes immediate symptoms. So when you sneeze and you itch, when you go to grandma's house, which is dusty and there are cats everywhere, this is the mechanism. But many patients present with persistent symptoms of congestion and blockage and mucosa, mucosal um, uh, hypersecretion with mucous gland hypertrophy. This it can't be driven by simply just the one-off degranulation muscles. It's driven by the late phase allergic response in which there's an influx of inflammatory cells from chemotaxis after this event occurs. And, and it doesn't occur until six to eight hours after the initial event. And if you're chronically exposed to antigen, such as dust and fungus, which lives in our environment, then you get persistent inflammatory changes and thus persistent rhinitis versus intermittent rhinitis, the breakdown. But that said, I think using the term seasonal and perennial, at least when taking patient histories and trying to work out whether they really are an allergic patient is still relevant, knowing that seasonal antigens are going to be things such as trees, um, grasses, and perennial antigens are going to be things such as house dust mite and fungus, uh, to give a simple explanation. So you've led me to my next question and and uh, spoken about uh, some of the historical associations. What else do you look for in the history? So I, I look for evidence of atopy. I look for evidence of asthma involvement as a child. I look for evidence of conjunctival disease. And these are the things that really help me to feel that, you know, how many organs are being involved by allergy. 
I think as ENT surgeons, it's rare that these patients present without having used a nasal steroid spray these days. And their response to the nasal steroid spray is very important. So if they've got some response while using the nasal steroid spray, more than, say, 5 or 10%, then they've probably got an inflammatory cause. And your history helps you to really nut out, is it allergic and is it associated with certain environments? Do they get it overseas? Do they, have they got it now starting a new environment? Um, and these are the things that help me. The other thing that helps in history is that allergic rhinitis patients rarely complain of smell loss. So if they've got smell loss, unilateral disease, unusual discharge, blood or anything else, then there's something else going on. They've either got CRS, polyps, another condition. Having completed your history, describe to me your physical examination of these patients. So my, my examination of these patients is really to exclude anything else. So I do a quick endoscopy and I make sure nothing else is going on. Um, I will look in the mouth to make sure nothing else is going on. I'll have a look in their ears because they often complain of station tubulated disease. And you do that all once so that you can stop having to listen about them, complain about every single part of their upper area digestive tract being involved by allergy. And then I will really consider a CT scan when there's any doubt of the diagnosis. And at least in my practice, I do that very early on because I really wanted to make it very clear whether this patient has sinus disease or allergic rhinitis. But I think in general practice, it's certainly worthwhile treating patients empirically with don't need a CT scan up front. Um, but that depends often on how much treatment the patients had prior to coming to you and how certain you are of their condition. How accurate uh, is the clinical exam in diagnosing allergic rhinitis? We talk about pale head of the inferior turbinate, engorged inferior turbinate, cobblestoning and so on. So, so I, I think it's actually very important. And so I think there's an enormous difference between an, a normal nose, you just don't see many of them, um, and an allergic rhinitis nose. And I think it's important when actually seeing patients to look at the difference. So um, if you look at a head and neck cancer patient, you look in their nose, um, on route down to their larynx or wherever their disease may be, you'll see that they actually differ greatly. That said, there are a lot of studies that talk about the inaccuracy of endoscopic findings, and they often make statements such as, no difference in endoscopy between allergic nose and allergic nose. That statement should be changed, and it should be changed to there's no difference in the way that the endoscopic findings were being recorded at between allergic nose and allergic nose. And this is very much true probably for endoscopy of sinus disease as well. So I think that is still one of the arts of ENT surgery, that I think understanding what is a really congested turbinate and, and the mucosal secretions and cobblestoning of the lining of the allergic nose and seeing clear secretions running down the back of the nose is still something that I think is very, very important. But if you said to me, can you put it together in a structured sort of outcome survey, it's very, very difficult. You've uh, completed your physical examination. At this point, uh, investigations, what do you normally arrange for these people? So there's only one test that I arrange for allergic patients, and it's epicutaneous temporary testing. It's the gold standard. Um, I think every practitioner should do it. Uh, there is ways in which it can be remunerated, both from government and private, privately for patients, so that it, it actually can add to your practice. Um, and it is something that's really critical in, one, confirming the diagnosis of allergic rhinitis. It can help direct 
specific avoidance therapy. And finally, it also enables the direction and providing information for future immunotherapy. These are the three reasons why we perform the epicutaneous testing. Is there any role for RAS testing or any other blood tests? Only for children, only for patients who fail to get a positive control on their skin, and for patients who have dermatogravism in which everything comes up. These are the reasons why you might do a RAS test. But it's a secondary um, level uh, investigation. It shouldn't be done, in my opinion, because it's more convenient for the ENT surgeon. That's not a good basis that we should just be incorporating epigenetics testing into our practices. If you're serious about managing allergic disease, if you're not, then I think referring on to an allergist for appropriate testing is the best thing to do. So we move on to management of the allergic rhinitis patient. How do you manage these patients? So most commonly, almost all allergic rhinitis patients come to me having used a nasal steroid spray, and the ones... Um, if I'm convinced on history that this is what's going on, almost always, if they haven't had a response or it's been partial, is that it's technique-based. And if you run through the technique again with them and give them information as if they had this technique, you will often improve their symptom control. So the first thing I talk about is those who've been on nasal steroids. Just because they've tried them doesn't mean you shouldn't give them a go again. And likewise, um, there is evidence to show that um, for patients who have well-described cat allergic rhinitis, that it takes even up to sort of six or nine months for the inflammatory changes to fully resolve while on regular intranasal corticosteroids. That said, if, if you said to me, what are the broad terms in how we manage it? Avoidance therapy, pharmacotherapy, surgery and immunotherapy are the four modalities we have. Avoidance therapy is very limited in its effectiveness. Only good if you're like allergic to horses and you want to avoid it, or a dog. Avoidance therapy for dust mite really isn't effective, and the studies to prove this. And this is because if you go to great efforts to reduce the antigen load in your environment from a million parts per litre to 100,000, it only takes you a thousand to trigger you off. You've made no clinical difference. The only thing you've done is further lined the um, million dollar industry of dust mite protectors and ripping up your carpets to make it better. That said, if you have some patients who are super allergic to certain environments and they know what works for them and they want to try those things, they go ahead. But meta-analysis shows that it's probably not a great treatment. The next thing I say to patients is that the gold standard is to suppress your allergic response. This is for obstructive symptoms, itching and sneezing. And the thing to use here um, for anyone who's got persistent symptoms is an intranasal corticosteroid. They trump antihistamines hands down in every trial. And the concept of somehow sneezers and runners will respond to antihistamines and blockers to nasal steroids is not true. That nasal steroids trumps them all because of the way that it affects both the acute and the delayed phase of the allergic response. You can use antihistamines, of course. Most patients have tried these, and they use them for intermittent rhinitis, many of which will never make an ENT's office. And then um, you can add them in on a regular basis. And it has been shown that regular use of antihistamines is not harmful using non-sedating versions, and they can form down-regulation of the histamine receptor from chronic use. 
So that is advantageous to disease control. The next thing is um, immunotherapy. So many patients want to know if they get very good control using regulating histamine, nasal steroid, they've been shown how to use it. And I must admit, I personally don't go th through it myself. There is a information sheet from the Asthma Council of Australia on how to use the nasal steroid spray, and I think giving this to a patient is far more educational than trying to show a patient in your limited time slot of an interview on how to use the steroid spray. But if they're doing that and they get good symptom control with that, I t there are many patients want to know, where, where am I going with this? Because this allergic disease may be with them for many years between their you know, teens to late 40s is often that's there. So I talked to them about immunotherapy. Immunotherapy does several things. It can reduce their reliance on medication long term. And for the very young, it can also help modify potential evolution into other allergic diseases. I can see that we're going to talk about surgery next. And so why don't we move on to that question because it really is taken as part of one of these four modalities. So surgery, turbinate reduction, I think has a tremendous role to play in managing allergic myelitis. But it should be really acknowledged for what it is. It's a remodeling of the turbinate to improve the dimensions of the nasal airway so that they can cope better despite their condition. It doesn't treat their condition one iota. And so I think that's very important. And so that said is a role, then how do I use it? So patients who come to me who are very blocked, they've had allergic rhinitis all their teens and they're a late 20-year-old, and they're very blocked, they've got minimal allergic symptoms or minor, and they're, and they're controlled with a nasal steroid, but the obstruction isn't, then doing a turbinate reduction very early on in the piece of that patient is really going to improve their outcomes. They might find that they're a bit more itchy and sneezy afterwards. You know, potentially some people might say, because you opened up their nose again, allergen, that may be true, but at least they now have an open airway and they can go back to their pharmacotherapy. And there's no point saying that you've got a very blocked nose of any antigen coming in. It's not a good state either. And so I do use terminal reduction early on in, in blockers. There's very little evidence, and perhaps you could almost say none from meta-analysis, that nasal obstruction improves with immunotherapy. Immunotherapy is about modifying the allergic response, established terminal hypertrophy, the glandular hypertrophy that occurs here, the vascular engorgement that um, persists in the fibrosis of the turbinate, will not resolve with long-term immunotherapy. So patients who are blocked should really have, who, who um, can't control their blockage with nasal steroids, um, certainly turbinate procedures. Um, of course, in children, there is a caveat here that chronic adenoiditis can sometimes present as allergic myonitis, what appears to be allergic myonitis. And of course, that noidectomy should always be considered insured. Great. Well, that certainly covers uh, the role of surgery. Are there any future trends in the management of allergic rhinitis? Yes, I think where the future is going to hold. So there are some different ways in which the drug can be delivered. Like in the sinuses, the nasal cavity also suffers from poor distribution from simple sprays. Much of anatomized spray ends up liquefying between the head of the inferior turbine and the septum. And there are devices such as a bi-directional nasal spray, such as an OptiNose device, there um, that get better distribution to the cavity. Sometimes um, uh, there are 
new dry powdered inhalers that are coming out that are thought to have better local mucosal resonance time compared to aqueous. We live in an era when we think that everything's aqueous, but 30 years ago, everything was dry powdered um, gaseous inhalers. So um, there may be some moves back towards that. That's in terms of steroid delivery. There are some combination pharmacotherapies that are coming out, long-acting antihistamines, like such as olipatidine combined with steroid in a single treatment. There is some evidence that in patients who have severe allergic myonitis that using the congestant in the steroid as a long-term treatment, there's a low-dose decongestant um, may give assistance, and there's recent trials, very little evidence of a rebound effect that occurs in those patients. And then finally, there will be some novel forms, such as phototherapy um, and potentially further defining the role of drugs such as modulocase and leukotriene inhibitors. Um, phototherapy is looking at UV light. It's been shown to affect eosinophil um, apoptosis and lifespan in dermatologic conditions, and that's why some people use sunbeds for dermatologic. And there is some evidence that it might be effective in, in treating allergic disease of the most. So I think all of these drugs are going to be useful. And then finally, when it comes to immunotherapy, there is an enormous advance that's come out. Some lingual immunotherapy presents a very high concentration of antigen to the local mucosa and is really thought to be on par now for inhalant allergy compared to subcutaneous. And that recently there has been the development of grass immunotherapy tablet, so no longer just drops, that's currently available in Australia, and about 24 months away we'll have house dust mite available as a tablet. And so this really brings regular immunotherapy being integrated into patients' care, perhaps early on in their disease, much more um, appealing for, for patients, and I think for an ENT surgeon, perhaps who doesn't need to go to the um, efforts of organising immunotherapy themselves. Well, thanks, Richard. I think that uh, represents a, uh, a comprehensive discussion on, on the topic. Um, before we uh, wrap it up, I'll give you the uh, opportunity for the final word. Uh, the final word represents something that we've discussed that uh, maybe uh, you think is worth highlighting or something that we haven't covered. Okay, so the only thing I'd say is that we've spent the whole time talking about allergic minors. We could do another 20 minutes talking about non-allergic. The classic features of someone who has nasal reactivity that is non-allergic is going to be the patient who reacts to non-antigenic responses. Cigarette smoke, perfumes, cold air, maybe hormonal changes. These are the classic features of non-allergic rhinitis. Now, while they can be present in an uncontrolled allergic rhinitis patient, normally when allergic rhinitis patients are controlled and their inflammation of their nose is settled down, they no longer respond to these um, triggers, whereas non-allergic myonitis patients will always respond to these whether or not it's a steroid or not. Thanks very much for your time, Richard. Um, that was fantastic. Um, thanks for joining us, and please look for other ENT Expert Opinion podcast titles available on iTunes. We can be contacted via email on entexpertopinion at gmail.com.